<laughs> Quit out, Ghost Island Media. Today's episode is supported by the Institute for National Defense and Security Research in Taiwan, a think tank dedicated to fueling knowledge-based policy analyses and strategic assessments on Taiwan's security. China is trying to be a global power, but in reality, it's facing immense pressure dealing with political headwinds. Whether it's Xinjiang or Hong Kong, neither of which Beijing is handling so well. The biggest global power that's pushing back against China, the United States, is unpredictable and is in turmoil in its own domestic affairs. These are global issues, and this is the Taiwan Take. My name is J.R. Wu, and I'm your host. Welcome to the first episode. Well, the big difference is the rise of China. China is a much more powerful country today than it was 20 years ago. Is the number one economy in the region in terms of size. 20 years ago, that was Japan. 20 years from now, it will probably still be China. We speak to Dr. Karis Templeman, a political scientist at Stanford who is an advisor on the Taiwan Democracy and Security Project at the university. His focus is on Asia Pacific. In the next hour, we'll talk about the changing landscape of regional security, its implications on Taiwan as the island faces upcoming general elections, and the role that allies like the United States and Japan play. Karis. Good to have you with us. You've been coming to Taiwan since 2001 for research. What brings you to Taipei this time? Well, Jr., thanks for having me. I'm here as a presenter at the Institute for National Defense and Security Research. There was a workshop last week that your institution hosted, and I had the pleasure of speaking about influence operations in Taiwan and the threats they pose to Taiwan security. And since I'm here. It's my pleasure to make the rounds and to meet with Taiwanese of all political stripes and try to get a sense of how they're feeling about the upcoming elections and the、uh, security situation in the region. So today we're talking about security in the Asia Pacific. China is facing immense pressure right now. Its economy is stalling. It's facing global pushback against its business practices and, like you were just saying, propaganda influence. Karis, what's different today in the Asia Pacific security environment? Can you elaborate on China's rise, military, diplomatic, economic? Right. So the rises are initially from China's、uh, very rapidly growing economy. China became more plugged into the global economic system over the last twenty years. And has recorded growth rates that are north of ten percent、uh, repeatedly for over a dozen years until just recently. China's economy now is several times larger than it was in the 1990s, and from that economic power then stems political and diplomatic and ultimately military power as well. So China's military has also undergone a major modernization effort that started at about the same time in the mid 1990s. And that modernization effort is now bearing fruit. They have a much more sophisticated set of armaments,、uh, a much more effective and modern military air force and navy, and they have not been shy about trumpeting that fact that they have this、uh, new set of capabilities and they are willing and able to use them if they feel threatened or if they feel like their core interests are at stake. So that has fundamentally changed the kind of calculations of all the other countries in the region. 
less so China's intentions and more so what are, what are they able to do if uh, they get upset with us. I want to come back to China, but it sounds like what you're saying is that Beijing has shifted everyone's calculations. What is the role of the United States now? How is it different from before? Yeah, so the United States traditionally has been a source of stability for all of the other countries in the region. We've tried to maintain a very predictable, ironclad set of guarantees among our allies and partners in the region. And those relationships are supposed to outlast any particular change in administration in the U.S. and in the partner countries. What's changed is some growing uncertainty about the United States as a force for stability and predictability, right? So the Trump administration, Trump is, uh, if nothing else, he is unpredictable. And that then raises a lot of questions about whether these underlying commitments that the United States has made that have been the backbone of the security architecture of the region for the last 70 years. So how do we tie all this back to Asia-Pacific security? Well, the big challenge, as I mentioned earlier, is the rise of China. That's It's upsetting a lot of calculations that have underpinned security relationships in the region for decades. Uh, so the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is subtly changing. I wouldn't say fundamentally, but it's changing at the margins in a way that has brought the sides slightly closer together. Uh, but the U.S. relationship with some of our other treaty allies, security treaty allies and partners in the region has become a bit more unsettled. Uh, we haven't talked about the Philippines yet, but the U.S. actually has a security alliance with the Philippines that is under considerable strain right now on both sides of the relationship, but particularly on the Philippines side where President Duterte has taken a much more kind of pro-China approach in his diplomatic language and actions. Um, in the South Korea-U.S. relationship, we have a much deeper longstanding partnership that includes troops on South Korean soil. The U.S.-Japan relationship has been, I would say, fairly steady, but the Japanese are very nervous about the rise of China and in particular their expansion of Chinese military power. And the Japanese have been, I would say, fairly fairly aggressively looking for ways to cooperate more with the United States to enhance the jointness of their militaries. So under Trump, Taiwan has actually benefited from better ties with the United States. I mean, there was the call between Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen and U.S. President Donald Trump in December 2016, uh, more military sales that have been approved and more unofficial, let's say, diplomatic measures that have gone through legislation in the U.S. that favor closer ties with Taiwan. Yes, uh, almost all of that's true. It was a phone call with President Tsai and President-elect Donald Trump. He wasn't actually the president yet, and that's, that's an right. important distinction to make. There has still not been a, a direct call between a sitting Taiwanese president and an American president. Um, Isn't that crazy? Um, Every other world leader can talk to each other, yet here Taiwan is. Yeah, and it is an imposition from the U.S. side to maintain the integrity of our one China policy, which uh, holds that we do not recognize Taiwanese independence, we do not support Taiwanese independence, and we acknowledge the PRC claim that Taiwan is a part of China. And in order to maintain that diplomatic stance, we have imposed a series of restrictions on the kinds of interaction that American officials have with our Taiwanese counterparts, including direct conversations between the two leaders. However, despite all of that, there's been some 
changes we've seen under this Trump administration. That's right, JR. There's been some important changes. They've been, for the most part, subtle, but they've moved U.S. policy in a direction that I think uh, indicates a warming of ties with Taiwan. And I would note that most of these changes have happened under the radar. They have not been directed from President Trump himself. Uh, There are people further down in the administration who generally uh, are more hawkish, more suspicious of Chinese motives, and as a corollary, are generally more friendly to and, and more favorable to Taiwanese interests and requests. So the United States is one of the biggest unofficial security ally for Taiwan. Are they working together on trying to keep security in the region, if not, let's just say, North Asia? Uh, Yes. I I think the United States and Taiwan have partnered for a long time on – it depends on what you define as security. So if it's humanitarian aid, for instance, Taiwan has some real comparative advantages in that area. So hurricane or typhoon relief, for instance – Taiwan has a lot of experience responding to typhoons in its own territory and uh, delivering aid effectively and efficiently to typhoon-damaged areas. Taiwan had a big presence in the Philippines when – when was this? There was a typhoon that hit the Philippines a few years ago that really created a lot of damage and Taiwan was one of the biggest sources of aid there. So it seems like for Taiwan – It's limited to humanitarian disaster relief, this sort of uh, softer type of security uh, measures. And we can't really or Taiwan can't really use military power to bolster security in Asia. Well, it's complicated. Uh, Humanitarian aid and more generally developmental aid, which Taiwan does a fair amount of as well, those are less overtly security-oriented and they're less political, right? It's, uh, the problem that Taiwan faces is that its own military interaction with other nations' militaries is going to be objected to by the PRC and has been for a long time. And in fact, uh, one of the core principles that the PRC laid out when it normalized relations with virtually all the other countries that matter in the region was that they would cut off all ties with the Republic of China on Taiwan military forces. Um, And so the U.S. has resisted that to some extent. We do involve Taiwanese uniformed military officers and and even down to the private level in some of our exercises. We do train some of them in the United States. And that's all part of the United States being this unofficial security ally for Taiwan. Right. And I would uh, emphasis on unofficial. The U.S. security community never refers to Taiwan as an ally because that has a specific legal context that we've signed a treaty and there are clear legal obligations. The United States does not have those clear legal obligations to come to Taiwan's defense or to provide a certain uh, clearly spelled out set of set of resources for the Taiwanese side. But the Taiwan Relations Act does spell out and U.S. policy over the last 40 years since then does establish, I think, a pretty clear set of, if not overt obligations, at least promises that we would do well to keep to the Taiwanese, uh, including the fact that uh, there was actually a recent memo that the Reagan administration wrote that was secret that specified that the United States would tie our reduction in arms sales to Taiwan specifically to the military uh, balance in the Taiwan Strait and that if the PLA remained 
unable to credibly threaten Taiwan, then we would reduce our own sales. But that those issues, that balance and U.S. military aid to Taiwan were explicitly and inextricably linked in U.S. policy. And that's been policy ever since. And so the recent declassification of that memo made that very, very clear that we are we have been committed, it hasn't been public knowledge, but we have been committed to continuing to supply arms of a defensive nature to Taiwan as long as the PLA continues to increase its ability to threaten Taiwan. Security isn't all about just military. How about in other aspects, particularly in protecting democracy? Yes, an excellent question. And this is a concern that has really risen to the top of the agenda in both Taipei and Washington in terms of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. There's a lot of concern that the Chinese are looking for ways to erode Taiwan's democratic institutions. We do have an election coming up. We do. Uh, and that election, it looks like it will be very hotly contested. Uh, the Chinese efforts to influence Taiwan elections are not new. They've been going on for at least 20 years. So in 1996, Li Denghui, who was the incumbent president, was facing his first direct election of the Taiwanese electorate. And Beijing had a kind of ham-handed response to that. They did war games off the approaches to the north and south of Taiwan. And that was heavily covered. The U.S. sent two carrier groups to the region. And the response was Li Denghui won that election by a larger margin than most people had predicted. So the Beijing actions backfired. And this has been a, a typical pattern where Beijing tries to engage in overt coercion of the Taiwanese voters. There's a backlash. The the, the Chinese Communist Party, based in Beijing, got smarter in the 2000s and decided to provide more carrots as well as sticks to Taiwanese voters and rolled out a series of initiatives to try to make certain Taiwanese sectors, including agriculture, more dependent on the mainland market and therefore more supportive of a China-friendly candidate running for office. Um, well, in part, as a consequence, Taiwanese public opinion towards the PRC shifted in a direction that benefited Beijing. So here's a tough question, Karis. Mm -hmm. What does Taiwan's upcoming election mean for security in the Asia Pacific? I mean, if I'm sitting in Seoul or I'm sitting in Tokyo or Manila or anywhere else in Asia Pac, why do I care about Taiwan's election and how will that change the security calculations? Mm. Yeah, that is a tough question. Uh, the most fundamental concern here is that if an election sparks a, a strong reaction from Beijing uh, in terms of greater economic coercion, some kind of greater diplomatic pressure, greater pressure on other countries in the region to cut off ties with Taiwan, uh, those countries effectively are getting caught in the crossfire of the cross-strait deterioration in relations. And the election result could lead to that outcome. Is it possible the election can maintain stability in Asia-Pacific? Is there a scenario there? Certainly. I mean, the two major candidates running for office are the incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen, and the KMT nominee challenger, uh, Hang Guoyu. And the DPP, of course, has traditionally been looked upon in Beijing as a supporter of Taiwanese independence and therefore very, very problematic. And uh, traditionally, the KMT has been looked on as the more China-friendly party and the party that Beijing can work with. Um, I'm not sure this time around whether Beijing still has that attitude towards the KMT even. Uh, and so the result of this election may 
if a KMT candidate were to win this election, uh, you might see a, a loosening up of the pressure campaign, a reversal maybe even. But I wouldn't guarantee it. Um, things in Beijing have changed a lot in the last five years, including the policy towards Taiwan. So give us some long lens view, Karis, on Taiwan's security situation and how it's evolved. Well, the last 20 years or so, Taiwan's own uh, defense preparations have been, uh, frankly, I think, inadequate uh, to meet the rapidly rising military threat from across the strait. Uh, and this has been a longstanding puzzle in the United States. Why isn't Taiwan doing more to defend itself or to prepare to defend itself against the rising threat? Part of the reason for that, I think, is a kind of weariness and discounting of the threat among the Taiwanese electorate. People here are more focused on domestic spending than military spending. Um, they support broader uh, welfare provision uh, and any, every dollar you spend on a new jet or a tank is a dollar that can't go to providing, say, old age pensions. Although, to be fair, most countries, their populace would be thinking the same thing. That's right. And so the question in Taiwan is why hasn't the budget calculus kind of spit out a larger number in the same way that it has in, say, Korea? So uh, I'll give you some concrete numbers here. In the mid-1990s, Taiwan spent about two-thirds of what Korea did on its military budget. Today, Taiwan only spends about one-third of what Korea spends on its military budget. I ask you, which country has the bigger existential threat? North Korea is a more immediate threat, but I would argue that China is the more serious long-run threat. So what happened? Yeah. So this is uh, something I've, I've wondered about for a long time. I've been researching and writing on this question for, gosh, a decade now probably. Um, and I think there are at least two factors at play. One is the kind of threat fatigue, the feeling that the PRC threat is not really military so much as economic and diplomatic and that the military aspect, it's a lot of Taiwanese don't really take the military threat seriously. Whereas in Korea, there are demonstrable occasions where a Korean soldiers have actually died in that conflict in recent years. And so it's very clear, very salient to people that there is a threat there that is mostly military. Um, so the nature of the threat is different. And that somehow is affecting how people think about the cost-benefit trade-off in military spending in Taiwan. Um, a second issue is that defense issues have become more partisan in Taiwan. So in the 1990s, the DPP was actually the party that generally opposed the military and opposed more spending because it was a KMT-run military. With the transition to a DPP president, that calculus changed and the KMT became much more wary of additional arms purchases from the United States, larger defense budgets, a revamping of the uh, Ministry of National Defense overall defense concept and so on and so forth uh, because they thought of those as provocative actions that would potentially trigger a, a more hostile response in Beijing. And so uh, during the Chen Shui-bian era, there was actually a partisan split over whether to acquire more arms from the United States or not. And that partisan split, I think we shouldn't exaggerate how much that exists today, but I think there is still a significant difference between the parties on how much they would emphasize additional allocation of resources to the military versus non-military efforts to improve the security situation in the Taiwan Strait. So how about uh, for just the last four years? Right. So the Tsai administration has taken a, a markedly different approach to defense issues from her predecessor, Ma Yingzhou. Um, 
She's focused much more explicitly on defense budget increases. They haven't been huge, but they have been increases, which effectively did not happen for the, the previous 12, 16, 16 years, really. And as a consequence, the military is getting an infusion of new resources. Um, Atsai has also uh, not been shy about announcing support publicly for the military and the service that they do and the importance of them to upholding Taiwan's status as a de facto independent democracy. And actually, just today, it's Taiwan's National Day. There is a fair bit of military on display just for the celebrations. Yeah, and I think that's a savvy political move uh, because the one of the biggest challenges Taiwan faces is that a service a career in the military is looked upon by most young people as a career of last resort. They'd rather do anything else but go into the military. Um, Taiwan is transitioning to an all-volunteer force right now, but high school graduates still have to serve at least four months uh, in basic training, and most people don't want to do that at all, right? They see it as a waste of time. And that's because the military has this kind of negative image among young people. And so changing that image so that a significant number of Taiwan's best and brightest not only are willing to, but actually enthusiastic about going in and serving their country with a career in the military is, I, I think, a much more fundamental and much more important change to Taiwan's defense posture than whether they can acquire another package of arms sales from the United States. So it's not all about just money. Not at all. No, I think uh, the the money issue is something concrete and tangible that you can point to, but the symbolic issues, the the kind of motivation of young Taiwanese to defend their country in a way that involves some sacrifice and turning down lucrative careers to uh, commit to being posted to places like Ituaba for a couple of years is uh, – that's a a more fundamental and ultimately I think a more decisive factor. You know, I've been to Ituabu in the South China Sea, Taiping Island. It's actually quite nice and sunny. Yeah, well, I had uh, a, a Taiwanese roommate from college when I studied abroad here who uh, was very pleased to be posted to Dongsha Chundao. I, I don't actually know the English name for that, but uh, it was a Dongsha Archipelago. And he said it was great because he couldn't spend any money there because there were no 7-Elevens even. And he just got to lie on the beach and, and you know suntan every day. And he got hardship pay too. I think that's a marketing opportunity <laughs> for Taipei. Very nice. You're listening to The Taiwan Take. We're talking with Dr. Karis Templeman. And coming up, Karis and JR talk about Hong Kong, Australia, freedom of navigation, and more. We hope you like what you've heard so far. Hit us up on Twitter at Ghost Island Me. Let us know what else you like to hear on the show. Taiwan's gearing up for its once-in-four-years national election, presidential, and uh, parliamentary seats are coming up. What is going to impact this election? Um, so the, by far the thing to have the biggest impact on Taiwan politics over the last six months has been the rise of protests in Hong Kong against the introduction of an extradition bill there. Those protests have been on the front pages and in the news here uh, repeatedly over the last several months. And it's a very, very salient issue to most Taiwanese voters now as a result. There's a couple reasons that's worrying to uh, Taiwanese and more broadly to the rest of the region. One is uh, a very practical reason. Um, 
if the one country, two systems model, which guarantees Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy, its own legal system, uh, its own political leaders, if that system is further eroded, then investors who use Hong Kong as a base to enter mainland China will be less and less confident about their own investments there. Uh, ordinary academics like myself who visit Hong Kong and use that as a base may have to worry about whether we might be you know, if I'm too pro-Taiwan in this podcast, for instance, will I be scooped up if I go to Hong Kong the next time and detained? Oh, no. Right? <laughs> uh, and so that that has never really been a serious threat in the past because for 20 years after the handover in 1997 until about 2017, the PRC guarantee of one country, two systems, they seem to be following through on that promise. They really had not uh, – they certainly hadn't eroded the system as it was in 1997. But there was a critical moment where they were supposed to deliver direct elections of the government, including the chief executive. And when that critical moment came up, the Beijing authorities said, we are not going to allow Hong Kong voters to choose whoever they want to be their leader. We get the right to screen the candidates first, and we can exclude certain candidates if they don't meet our approval. And so they effectively reneged on the promises they had made uh, under the resolution that delivered Hong Kong to PRC rule. So what does that mean for the rest of the world? As a consequence, the biggest issue is that it, it looks like the PRC's promises to the rest of the world are not credible. When it's inconvenient for them, they may reverse or renege on those promises. Uh, it has a signaling purpose. So if one country, two systems is rolled back well before the 50 years that was promised is up, then the rest of the world has to worry about any other promises that the CCP in Beijing makes. And to kind of bring this back to Taiwan, the Taiwanese people more than anybody else have to worry about the credibility of CCP promises. And so if the CCP, it has offered one country, two systems as the formula for eventual unification of Taiwan with the PRC. That has never been a popular position in Taiwan. Only a very small minority have ever voiced support for that position. Now, even that one country, two systems formula looks like it might not be a credible formula for unification because nobody in Taiwan can actually believe that the authorities in Beijing will keep that promise. Now, how about further down south? Uh, what's the U.S. security situation and developments looking like in ASEAN, uh, in the South Pacific, and perhaps even with Australia? Yeah. So Australia is a really interesting case for the Trump era where there's been a, I would say, a sea change in Australian perceptions of Chinese power opportunities, threats, and intentions. So the previous prime minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, actually led an investigation into Chinese influence operations into the Australian political system. And they published a report that was quite revealing that suggested that the Chinese were systematically finding ways to censor or tip the scales of public debate about Chinese issues and about the image of China in Australia. And they viewed that as a fundamental assault on Australian democracy. And That's part of this influence campaign that you had spoken about in your most recent research. That's right. Yeah. So Australia is one of the first places where this has really been exposed, investigated at a high level and uh, where there's actually been legal action taken to counter it. Uh, so they created a, a Foreign Agents Act that requires agents of foreign governments to register modeled on the U.S. Uh, system. Um, and 
We'll see how much impact that has over the long run, but I think it has stalled some of the Chinese momentum to influence Australian domestic politics. Now, closer to Australia, as also part of the security situation, I know in our institute's own research, the South Pacific, uh, last month, there was a switching of ties, Kiribati and the Solomon Islands. One of our research notes that the U.S. actually has military presence in the South Pacific. What do this? Uh, what does this switching of ties towards Beijing mean for that? Uh, well, it's of great concern to the United States, and in particular, the United States Indo-Pacific Command, the military structure that's based in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Concern is that if there are Chinese state-owned companies in these uh, island states across the Pacific, they're capable of building infrastructure that the Chinese could potentially use in a conflict with the United States. And so there's a kind of long-term security concern of the U.S. military of an expanding Chinese economic and potentially military presence in the Pacific. This is a bit uh, out there, but I must ask you, Karis, uh, Kiribati, it is one of the first islands or archipelagos out there that may just fall into the sea because of climate change. Now, some research has also noted China has dredged. It knows how to make artificial islands from the South China Sea experience. If it does the same in the South Pacific, now that Kiribati is an ally, do you think that's possible? Um, and also from the security perspective, is it a concern? Um, to the extent that any Chinese presence in these countries links them more closely into Beijing's economic sphere, potentially denies the United States and like-minded allies and partners a access to those islands in the case of a conflict – then yeah, I think it is a concern. Their experience uh, dredging up sand and creating artificial islands in the South China Sea could be of, of relevance, but I'm, I haven't really thought about the problem. And I frankly haven't seen anything written on that. Um, so I don't think it's something of a high priority of, of kind of U.S. Uh, strategic thinkers right now. Now, speaking of the South China Sea, freedom of navigation operations – Tell us a bit more about how that works into the whole security situation in the Asia-Pacific. Right. So the idea behind freedom of navigation operations or phone ops is to uphold international law of the sea. Um, the UNCLOS, the United Nations Covenant on the Law of the Sea, specifies that there should be free innocent passage for any country's vessels uh, through any international extraterritorial waters. And the reason we're talking about this is because China in the South China Sea claims all that area and it gets upset when other vessels go through it. Well, they get upset when other vessels do not ask permission to go through it. That's the key distinction here. And the U.S. assertion, which is substantiated under international law and has been backed by an international tribunal that ruled on this issue is that those waters are not Chinese territorial waters. Uh, it's a vague and poorly defined claim, even if it were to be recognized somewhere. Therefore, uh, the United States and any other country that wishes to send its ships through the region doesn't have to ask Chinese permission to send their ships through. Is this why we see 
ships from the United Kingdom or、uh, ships from Australia, and we're talking big military vessels. Is that why they're sailing through too?、Uh, yeah, and this is a fairly recent development.、Uh, the United States has traditionally done phone ops all over the world.、Uh, during the Cold War, they were used to challenge certain Soviet claims as well,、uh, and there are claims by lots of countries that do not conform to international law. And the United States has traditionally tried to challenge all of those claims,、uh, and so the claims in the South China Sea that overlap with one another are not just Chinese claims, but Vietnamese, Brunei, the Philippines,、uh, Malaysia. They all have overlapping claims. Even Taiwan has an overlapping claim, and the Taiwan claim—it's kind of a gray area. But officially, the Taiwan claim and the PRC claim are. If not exactly the same, then very, very similar. And so the U.S., when we do phone ops through the region,、uh, is challenging all of those claims at the same time. So it's not just directed at one country. Correct. Yeah, it's a broader principle of upholding international law, and that is the kind of traditional role that the United States has played as global policemen. Where if we don't uphold international law、uh, with like-minded allies and partners, then who's going to do it? So these are really big issues that Asia Pacific as a whole is facing. Wow! Thanks, Karis, for breaking it down today for us. And speaking of signaling, what can we expect from you、uh, in your future research? I well, I'm certainly interested in the 2020 elections, and part of my purpose for being here is to learn more about that, and I'll continue to research and write on that.、Um, I'm. Very interested in what happens after the 2020 elections as well. What,、uh, whether we might see a change in policy in Beijing, whether we might see a change in cross-strait approach、uh, from whoever is elected the next president of Taiwan here in Taipei,、uh, and also、uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in Washington D.C. right now about the current administration, their approach to the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific region, and、uh, so I'll be keeping a close eye on that as well over the next few months. Thank you so much, Dr. Karis Templeman from Stanford University. I'm J.R. Wu, and this has been the Taiwan Take. This is a Ghost Island Media production. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else. Find us on Twitter at Ghost Island Me. This episode was produced and edited by Emily Y. Wu. Sam Robbins is our researcher. Production assistance from Allison Chan. And brand design by Thomas Lee. We recorded this at MyCoin, a Bitcoin exchange based in Taipei, Taiwan, and on a Yeti microphone provided by Blue. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.